Good morning, Trinity Church. Hey, I am so excited about this morning. We are at a point in 2 Peter where we are reaching an apex of information for us, of transformation. And so I, I just want to get right into the passage this morning. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're in verses 5 and 6. So if you would open your Bibles this morning, I hope you have, you, have them with you. To 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look specifically at uh, verse 6, but I want to start at verse 5. In fact, I'm going to give you a little quiz this morning. I know you didn't come prepared. This is a pop quiz, but there's also a cheat sheet right in front of you. It's verses 5 and 6, okay? So it says, for this very reason, everything we have leading up to verse 4, make every effort to add to your faith. All right, so here's the first question on the pop quiz. What are we adding to our faith? Virtue, goodness, excellence. Okay, and that's simply the, the quality of understanding. God has called me into relationship with him, and he's given me this incredible, transformative Christian life to live. I want to do my best at that. That's what that means. Add to your virtue or, or excellence or goodness. What's the next thing? Knowledge. Knowledge of what? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not, remember, we're not talking about this distant visual of who Jesus is. It's an intimate, everyday, moment-by-moment experience of who he is so that he actually forms the way that we think and, and he takes our heart and he molds it into his will and purposes. So we add to goodness or virtue, knowledge. What do we add to knowledge? Self-control. We live in a world that requires that if we're going to live the Christian life. We have to be an individual who is resisting the temptations of the world and resisting the desires of the flesh. And so we need this self-control to keep us in line with what we've learned about Christ and living that Christian life. So what do we add to self-control? Perseverance, diligence, tenacity. Because living in this world is going to require Sticking with it, perseverance, as we exercise self-control and have these, this relationship with Christ. Now, we get to a quality today that is like the apex, the mountain top of these qualities. Up until this point, we've been hiking the switchbacks. Any of you who love to uh, go out and go hiking in the mountains know the switchbacks is where you have a lot of the effort and a, a very little of the view. But today we get to this quality where Peter says to us, as you've been adding these things that really pile up on each other, you have to begin with faith, you have to move forward with all of these other qualities, but as you're developing them, and they don't have to be perfect, you get to this point where he says, and add to your perseverance, godliness. Add godliness. So this is the top of the mountain. This is where we get that incredibly beautiful vista where everything we've done to this point to develop our walk with Jesus Christ and our resistance to the temptations of the flesh and the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil, it, it culminates in this beautiful quality of godliness. And so if you're taking notes this morning or if you're following along, today we reach this point of, um, of observing the Christian growth where we see something truly um, wonderful, truly amazing happening, taking place, and that is godliness. So the question for us today is, what is that? What is godliness? And what difference can it make in our lives? I like how John Piper describes in his blog, DesiringGod.org, he has this blog called, Is There a Key to Godliness? 
And I, I'll put it on the screen for you, but I think he really nails it when he talks about this internal wrestling match between who we are as a broken human being in the flesh and what we want to be. Listen to this. He says, whether you're in your 20s or 60s, you probably have some long-standing heart responses you don't like. These are like reflexes. You don't choose them. They spring up unintentionally from your heart, usually in response to the people around you. Does that sound like life? It does, doesn't it? He says it may be anger or anxiety, envy, resentment, self-pity, disgust, frustration, discouragement, lust, irritability, hard-heartedness, brusqueness, unkindness, withdrawnness. And then he says, when any of these attitudes springs up unbidden, you hate it. You've fought it for years with gospel faithfulness, trusting in the blood of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit to cover it and to conquer it. Still, it returns. You weep over it. You ask your closest friends to pray for you. There's a short season of reprieve, and there it is again, stamping you, telling you, this is who you are. And you say, no, in Christ, this is not who I am. His stamp is on my life. True, but oh, you would be done with this. Oh, to be new through and through, not in such a limited way. Is there a remedy? Is there a key? Notice his next word. No. Does that make you feel discouraged? It's like we just got to this point, John. What's the answer? No. He says there are a thousand answers. The point of this article, he says, is to remind us that every scripture is profitable for training in righteousness so that we might be complete, equipped for every good work. Every verse is profitable, thousands of them. Now, folks, I won't disagree with John. I, I agree the word of God is what takes us to this place that we need to be, where the old flesh is dying off and the new power of the Holy Spirit is being brought in. We need all of God's word to inform us and transform us. But what I would say to you this morning is that all of these thousands of verses do bring us to one point in life, to godliness. That's the intention of the word of God. Godliness is the mountaintop goal that God has for us, and it's the cure to what ails us and all of our life experiences today. What we're talking about today is the point of the Word of God, to bring us into a relationship with Him and to change us. So I want you to look back for a moment into the qualities we've looked at real quickly. And I want you to see the flow, the progression of how they move. So the, these first three qualities, you look back to the earlier verses that uh, God gives Peter here in Second Peter, and you have faith and you have goodness and knowledge. They all focus us on our walk with Jesus and Christian growth. That's the whole purpose of those qualities, to pursue them. And then he adds these other two. We talked about them the last two weeks of how as we live out the life of Christ in the world, we need the self-control and perseverance because we live in a world that truly is owned by Satan. The Word of God is clear on that. We live in a body that is dominated by the flesh. We will have that until we enter heaven. And the flesh is hostile to God's values and commands. So we need those qualities. But this quality... Godliness takes those two worlds and brings them together in a beautiful and powerful harmony. We've reached the top of the mountain. And so Peter says godliness is that key experience of life that is guiding us 
that he is guiding us toward in this sermon series of having it all. And remember the focal point. You find it in verses 3 and 4. So look back to verses 3 and 4. It says, His divine power, that's God, His divine power has granted to us all things, everything that pertains to life and godliness. Do you see how that was right up front for us? And now in this progression of qualities, we finally have come to the top. And, and Peter says, this is what we've been aiming at. Your life lived out in godliness. And he goes on to point out to us, he says, his, God's power has done everything related to this godly life. This is why God's power is in our lives, to push us in this direction, empower us in this direction through our knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he does that through the granting of great and precious promises to us that are reliable. And he does all of that so we can escape the corruption that is in this world caused by evil desires, ours and the rest of the world. We can escape them. So when John Piper writes about all of these internal turmoil of emotions, of anger and anxiety and resentment and self-pity and frustration and, and all the rest of it, Peter is saying, God doesn't want us to stay there. And the answer to that is godliness. It changes us from within. It molds us into the men and women and young people of God that he desires to live in this world. So folks, here's the point. If you're looking to be radically different in your relationship with other people, a husband or a wife, a family member, brother or sister, a friend, neighbor, a coworker, no matter what the relationship is, if you want to be radically different in that relationship, you have to come to this point in 2 Peter today. You have to consider godliness and add it to your life. This is where God has brought us today. Now, I love the fact that when Peter talks about this word, God gives him a very uncommon Greek word. You don't see it a lot in the New Testament. We're actually going to put up on the screen its uh, Greek uh, name or uh, term, and then what it means. So it's the term, eusebeia. Uh, <clears throat> eusebeia. The U part in the Greek language means good. And we use that in English today, in a lot of our English words, like we talk about uh, euphoric, right? Euphoric, which is a, an expression of something incredibly good or positive. We're euphoric about it. That's the idea of this good expression. Or we use the word euphemism. We substitute a good description for a rather poor one. I remember growing up, we used to talk about the trash man and getting the cans out front to the street for the trash man. Well, now it's sanitation engineer, you know, because that's a, a euphemism. It sounds much better. And they do a great job. I love these guys. I always take time to say hi. The you part, eulogy. We have memorial services. We speak good words. So the you part means good or well, Sabea means worship, or reverence, or awe. So when Peter, inspired by God, says to us, pursue godliness, what he's saying is pursue good worship. Does that change the way you think of godliness? So godliness is not this holier-than-thou uh, sanctimonious, goody-two-shoes, self-righteous, nose-in-the-air, I'm a saint and you ain't attitude. Right? That isn't godliness. Godliness is this act of worshiping God with such awe and fear and reverence that it translates into following his desires in this world and erupts into care toward others. That's what Peter's talking about here. 
And so thirdly, he says we see godliness in action in the lives of people who love and adore God because they love others too. This is where we see godliness. It's directed toward God, and then it becomes directed toward people. And if you want to see some examples of it, you can turn to the book of Acts. This term does show up a lot in Timothy, Peter, and Acts. And we find in Acts chapter 10 the story of a military man who is godly. You know him as Cornelius. Let me read Acts 10, 1 through 6. We'll also put it on the screen for those of you who would like to just stay in 2 Peter. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion. He was over a hundred other Roman soldiers in what was known as the Italian Regiment. This was a very elite military force. You might think of army rangers today or uh, a, a Navy SEAL kind of individual. And it says, he and his family were devout. That's the word Eusebia. He was godly and God-fearing. So there you get the God part. But notice that the next phrase, he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And one day at about three in the afternoon, he had this vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear and he says, what is it, Lord? The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And you know the rest of the story, how Peter comes and is taken to Cornelius' house and shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice in his life, he's devout. He fears the God of the Old Testament. He's heard enough from the Jewish people. In fact, in verse 22, it says the entire Jewish community loved this guy because he was so caring toward them. He provided generously for others. He prayed for others. And so his worship of God led him to obey God's commands to provide for the needs of others. And his kneeling before God caused him to kneel before men and serve them. So here's a great example of a godly man. We see these two components in his life. Now, if you want to go a little further into the world of business, you see in Acts chapter 16 the story of a woman business person, a businesswoman. Her name is Lydia. And it says, from Troas we put out to sea, and we sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went to, uh, on to Neapolis, and from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days, Paul writes. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. That was a typical place of prayer for Jewish people. And he says, we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of them... Listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Now notice the description of her. She was a worshiper, Eusebia, of God. She was a godly person. She worshiped God. And it says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and when she and the members of her household were baptized in response, she invited us to her home. And she said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Evidently, it took a little bit of arguing with Paul, but she persuaded them. And so we, again, we see these two qualities, worshiper of God, caring about the individuals around her. I like how David Jeremiah defines godliness for us. If we want some other definitions, one 
is godliness is being faithful to our calling, that's the relationship with God, and doing the good works for which we were saved. Sounds a lot like discipleship, doesn't it? Relationship with God, engagement with the world. One of the commentators I read this week, Michael Green, put it this way. He says, godliness is a very practical, practical awareness of God in every aspect of life. Can you see how this is the pinnacle of these qualities that have led up to this point? It's this awareness of God that is so realistic that it shows up everywhere in my life. Warren Wiersbe, one of the older commentators, I like his definition. He says, this is the quality of character that makes a person distinctive. He or she lives above the petty things of life, the passions and pressures that control the lives of others. They seek to do the will of God, and as they do, they seek the welfare of others. You see that again? God and people. We must never get the idea that godliness is an impractical thing. That's so important. The godly person makes the kind of decisions that are right and noble. They don't take an easy path simply to avoid either pain or trial. They do what is right because it is right and because it is the will of God. So the Apostle Paul, as he begins to deal with this term, and we find it in one of his writings in 1 Timothy 6, says, you know, godliness is one of those two essentials of the Christian life. Paul actually boils it down to just two things. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. You can turn there if you'd like. I'll read it for, for you if you want to just stay in Peter. Listen to what he says. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with, number one, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and number two, the teaching that accords with godliness. So pause there for a second. Think about this. Paul is laying out for Timothy, this, this young pastor, as you deal with the church in Ephesus, as you help them grow, there's two things they need to know. They need to know the words of Jesus that he gave and taught through his apostles. And secondly, they need to know this teaching that fits in with godliness. Two essentials. Now, Paul goes on to say, what happens if you don't see that in the life of an individual, a life of a person who proclaims Christ? And he goes on to say this. If a person does not agree with both of these, then he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So, Timothy is wrestling with, how do I present the truth? And he has others coming in, in the church of Ephesus, and they're bringing up other ideas, and Paul says, no, they just need to conform to these two things. What has Jesus said, and what does it mean to be godly? And he ends this passage with talking about godliness as not pursuing something for me. Notice what he says, verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. My mother told me that a lot. Doug, be happy with what you have, not sad for what you don't have. That became a mantra in my family as we had our girls growing up. Hey, be happy for what you have, not sad for what you don't have. My mom had a huge influence on my life. And, and it came from this, this idea that godliness, if you have godliness and you're content in the world, there's great gain 
he says, for we brought nothing into the world. And, by the way, you're not going to take anything out of the world. I've never seen a U-Haul following a hearse. <laughs> never. Doesn't happen. We don't take anything out of the world. He says, but if we have food and clothing, with this we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He's simply saying godliness has a love for God, but it does not result in simply living one's life for oneself. Godliness always pushes toward the needs of others rather than my own needs. It's not wrong to meet needs that we have as individuals or for our families, but he's saying the love of money is going to take us away from godliness. And so he points out to us, if we meet a Christian who says to us, absolutely, I agree with everything Jesus said, but, but they live their lives for their schedule and their wealth and their well-being and themselves rather than for God and the needs of others, he said that is an individual who is either spiritually sick and unhealthy or they simply are not Christians at all. Because godliness is that essential element to our faith and walk with Christ. That's why it's at the apex of these things for Peter. And we'll see in the next two weeks, out of godliness flows two qualities. You remember what they are? Brotherly love and agape love. It's going to flow right out of godliness. Jerry Bridges wrote a book a number of years ago called The uh, Pursuit of Godliness. I don't know if you've read the book or if you've heard of it. I highly recommend it. I was given a copy in college, and I will never forget how he captured my imagination when he talked about this quality. So I want to read one page for you. It's a, an extended quote, but one page for you out of his book. Half of it we're going to put on the screen because of the significance of that second half. So here's the first half. Jerry writes, No higher compliment can be paid to a Christian than to call them a godly person. He might be a conscientious parent, a zealous church worker, a dynamic spokesman for Christ, a talented Christian leader, but none of these things matter if at the same time he is not a godly person. The New Testament word for godliness in its original meaning, we just looked at it on the screen, conveys the idea of a personal attitude toward God that results in actions that are pleasing to him. This personal attitude toward God is what we call devotion to God. He says, but it is always devotion in action. It is not just a warm, emotional feeling about God, the kind of feeling we might get while singing a great hymn of the faith or even a praise song of some modern chorus. It's not even a devotion out of a time of private Bible reading and prayer, a practice we sometimes call devotions. Have you had your devotions today? He said, that's not what we're talking about. This is a practice vitally important to a godly person, but we can't think of it as defining devotion for us. Now, here's the part I want to put on the screen for you. It's about three paragraphs at the end of this one page. Listen to what he says. This devotion, or godliness, is not an activity. Pause there. It's so easy to think that godliness is just an activity, but he says it doesn't begin there. It is an attitude toward God that is composed of three essential elements. Notice what they are. The fear of God. Number one, the fear, the awesome awe of who God is. The love of God, 
And thirdly, and, and importantly, the desire for God. Those three qualities make up godliness in this devotion. So if you're asking yourself, am I a person who is becoming godly? We have to come back to this point and say, how do I think about God? Do I have a reverence for him? Do I have a love for him? Do I have a desire for God? Now he goes on to say, all three elements focus upon God. The practice of godliness is an exercise or discipline that focuses on God. And from this Godward attitude arises the character and the contact that we usually think of as godliness. You see what he's saying? When you look at a godly person, it's easy to think that's what made them godly is the actions. But Jerry and Peter would back it up and say, well, no, it's this, it's this attitude first. So often we try to develop Christian character and conduct without taking the time to develop God-centered devotion. There's the key. We have to take the time to develop this God-focused devotion. We try to please God without taking the time to walk with Him, and we develop a relationship and develop a relationship with Him. This is impossible to do. This is why today we need this quality so well. Our lives are lived at an incredible pace. And how easy is it to pause and carve out time to be with God? This is the, the struggle we have in our American culture today. So he says, so we see that devotion to God begins with the fear of God, with the biblical view of his majesty and his holiness that elicits, elicits a reverence and awe for him. And then we see that the fear of God leads naturally to an apprehension of the love of God for us as shown in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And as we contemplate God more and more in his majesty and holiness and love, we will be progressively led to the apex of the triangle of devotion, the desire for God himself. In the life of the godly person, this desire for God produces an aura of warmth. Godliness is never austere and cold. Such an idea comes from a false sense of legalistic morality that is erroneous, erroneously called godliness. The person who spends time with God radiates his glory in a manner that is always warm and inviting, never cold and forbidding. This longing for God also produces a desire to glorify God and to please him. Folks, these are great words. Over the years in ministry, I've had people interact with me, and you can tell that warmth. You can tell that aura. Uh, people, uh, Lisa and I began to call them what we called bucket fillers. They would come into our life, and they would just pour the love of God and warmth into us. And it was like, wow, that is such a rich experience. And then you would meet other people occasionally who would become what we called bucket drillers. And they would just drill into your bucket and drain the energy. And you'd think, what is the difference between the two? And I think what Peter and, and what Jerry would say to us is the difference is godliness. This warmth, this aura that comes from God. So, so what does godliness do in our lives? This is our final point. What does it do when I pursue godliness? Well, number one is it offers us greater hope, value, and gain than anything else you could ever pursue in life. This will give you, deliver more to your life than anything else that you pursue in 2 Peter 1. And we know this because Paul writes to Timothy, and he uses this same term again. And notice what he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. 
Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. So I, I go to Fitness 19 about three days a week, so I spend about an hour and a half there, 7 o'clock in the morning, and I've gotten to know the 7 o'clock crowd. You know who's going to be on the elliptical next to you, and you know who's going to be over on the weights, and, and you can tell the groupings, and I'll tell you, there are people there who are much better off physically than I am. They've got the bulging muscles, and they've got the, the ability to lift weights, and they are running on the treadmill faster than I could ever hope to at this age of my life. And I'm there just trying to maintain what I've got, right? And I look around and I think, this has value. It has value to me, it has value to them, but it's a limited value because guess what? The older we get, the harder I have to work to get it all back together again. Because I always have the special occasions, right? Oh, this is a birthday party. I can go off my, uh, my training regimen. Oh, oh, this is Valentine's. I, I can go off my regimen. Oh, this is Easter. I take a break from my regimen. And you name it, there's plenty of opportunities to do that. And I notice it right away. So Peter writing to Timothy is so clear. He says, look, that, that has value, but it's limited. Timothy, if you will train yourself for godliness... It's going to have an impact here and now in your daily life. And that impact is going to be seen relationally with God, the creator of all things, who is that ultimate bucket filler in your life, and with people who are going to be blessed by your relationship with the Lord. You're going to see a change in relationship with others if you pursue this quality. So here's the thing. If you could go for a walk for a half an hour or read the Bible, read the Bible. If you could press, bench press 250 pounds at your home gym or meet the need of a neighbor, meet the need of the neighbor. If you could ride your bike off-road or kneel in prayer, kneel in prayer. That's what Paul is saying. If you have the opportunity to do one or the other, invest in what lasts forever. Now, I'm not telling any of us to go home and be couch potatoes. But I think God would say to us, pursue what has true value. And he goes on to say, it has eternal value. It will prepare us for the return of Jesus Christ. And we find that in 2 Peter 3. So if you're still in 2 Peter, take, take uh, your Bible, turn a couple pages, come to 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12, and here's what it says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare as God creates his new creation world. God is going to create a new world for us. He's going to remove the impurities of the old by fire. And he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should we be? That's a great question. And his answer is, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So godliness actually prepares us to think more about that world that will be. To be ready to be a part of it as God creates it for the godly those who have pursued him and loved him and loved the world. That's godliness. So let me give you two final examples of what a godly person looks like. And these may be examples that seem a little bit out of the box, but I think they do the job for us. Mark was a young Christian student from Webster, New York, his freshman year, he was in a frat house, 
And one day there was a knock on the door, and he opened the door, <clears throat> and there was an old man clutching a, a wick, wicker basket um, containing some very unappetizing vegetables. And the man's eyes were glazed over, and his face was covered with several days' worth of, of gray stubble. And he, he says to Mark, hey, would you like to buy some vegetables? Well, startled by the offer and feeling a sudden impulse of pity mixed with fear, he, he bought a few of them, thinking he wouldn't use them at all. And he thanked the man and closed the door. Well, to Mark's chagrin, the old man returned again the next week, but this time without the vegetables. And he introduced himself to Mark. He said, hey, my name is Mr. Roth, and uh, I, I live just down the street. And he pointed to an old, run-down house with knee-high weeds and peeling paint. Mark and Mr. Roth began to meet every week. And it was the start of the most unlikely relationship. But as they grew closer and as Mark talked with Mr. Roth, he actually began to look forward to the visits. In fact, he planned his school schedule around Mr. Roth's visits. One day, he discovered that Mr. Roth's glazed-over look was not due to alcohol. He had cataracts, very severe cataracts, which would explain why he always wore two right shoes when he came over. Couldn't see which was left or right. And on a lot of his visits, Mr. Roth would bring his harmonica, and they would sit and talk together, and he would play his harmonica as Mr. Roth talked about life and vegetables and Jesus. On one visit with Mark, Mr. Roth was really excited, and he exclaimed, Hey, the Lord is so good. I came out on my front porch this morning, and I found a bag full of shoes and clothing on my front porch. Brand new! And, and Mark said, Why, Mr. Roth, knowing where they had come from, I'm so excited for you. And Mr. Roth replied, yep, me too. You know what's even more wonderful? I just met some people who could really use these. And I can't wait to see their faces when I drop it off. Godliness. Love for God. Love for man. Let me give you one more example. Calvin Miller, who is one of my favorite authors, he's written two books that I really love, The Song and The Singer. They're allegories on the life of Jesus and he writes about coming back from a ministry trip to um, a place where there was uh, a lot of young adults, uh, high schoolers, collegians. It was called Ridgecrest Camps. And he says, I'm coming back from Ridgecrest Camps a few years ago, and there had been 3,000 students there. They showed up everywhere, in your kitchen, on your walk, for a whole week. And then finally you're headed home on the plane, and you think, oh, Lord, thank you. I'm finally moving away from this place. And, and because the Bible is the last desperate defense on board an airplane, you pull it up around your face, and when you have your Bible around your face, everybody leaves you alone. It's a frightening specter. Even the stewardess won't ask you if you want peanuts. And exhausted, I said to the Lord, Lord, please, I, I just want to be alone for two or three hours before I get back to Omaha. But he said, as the plane left the runway, I became aware that the young man in the seat next to me was weeping. And he looked at the student, 19 or 20 years of age, and he said, again, I, I prayed, Lord, he's not mine. My sinners are all on the ground in Omaha. Thinking of his church where he ministered. And the student kept crying, and, he, and Calvin writes, I finally put down my Bible, and I said, son, I don't know what the matter is, but if there's anything I can help you with, I'd like to. 
And he told me that his mother and his father and his little sister had all been killed the day before in a car accident in Asheville, North Carolina while they were on vacation. And he was heading back home alone. Miller writes, suddenly my heart grew very still and silent. I felt the pain or tried to. I turned to him and said, I, I don't know what you must be feeling. I can't imagine this, but I know someone who understands it perfectly. And I took the Bible behind which I'd been hiding and shared with him about Jesus Christ. But it was not my last act. When I got off the plane in Omaha, I called someone I knew and asked them to meet this young man at his destination where he was going to be landing. He needed help that day. And he concludes with this. He says, you see, the world is mine. I can't brush off somebody because I happen to sit by him and don't know him. Yes, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If he is a servant, then we are servants. Godliness in action. Mr. Roth, Mark, Calvin Miller, all had a relationship with God that prompted them because they feared, loved, and desired God to make a difference in the life of somebody else that they didn't know. Mark didn't know Mr. Roth. That was the last thing he wanted as a young freshman at college, was to have this old guy stopping by all the time with vegetables. But he took time, and he even gave clothing to him. And then Mr. Roth turns around and says, I've got somebody who could use these things. And Calvin, in that most awkward of moments on an airplane, sharing the love of Christ with this young man. Folks, that's godliness. And as I invite our worship team to come back to the stage, I would like to just leave three questions with us today. So here they are. First, if someone followed you or I around for a week, what would our actions and attitudes, our behaviors and words tell them about our love for God and our awe for God? If they just walked and followed us around and, and watched what we said and did, uh, would, would there be things that they would applaud, like with Mark or Roth or Calvin or others or Cornelius or Lydia? Or would we want to change now something about our week yet to come? What would we want to do about this quality? Second thing is, is there anything distracting us from greater godliness in our life this week? What would be something that might pull me back from that fear, love, and desire for God and push me in a different direction? What can I do about it? And thirdly, if becoming more godly feels important to us this morning, and I pray to God it does, why is that so? Why is it important to you? Why is it important to me that I pursue godliness? And, and what is going to motivate me to become more godly this week in my everyday life? Because you see, this is the quality that Peter's been driving at. And in the next two weeks, he's going to say, out of that godliness is compassion for those you know and love for those you don't. And that's really where God wants us to be. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as our worship team wraps up this morning as we sing gratitude, God, may our hearts be 
filled with a fresh enthusiasm about who you are because you invite us to share your qualities. Your divine power gives us everything we need for life and godliness. God, I will confess to you this is something I am still growing into. I still wrestle with those moments of being called to do something good for someone else and feeling inadequate or feeling overwhelmed and feeling like I don't have time. But God, it's my relationship with you that compels me to do so. So God, may we pursue that relationship this week. And as we do, may we find in our lives that godliness is one of the outcomes. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.